We are barreling towards the finish line in Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, welcome, and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We are so close to the finish line, Patricia. I can almost see it, although I think it might be the first of two finish lines in the eventuality of a uh, of a runoff. But I'm sitting outside a Dunkin' Donuts right now in South DeKalb, and I have to let our, our listeners in on a little secret. I spent, well, first of all, the week before an election is often busier for political reporters than the week of an election because there's so much to do already on the campaign trail. And we do something called prep work, where we write stories for all sorts of eventualities, possibilities. Many of those stories never see the light of day, but you want to be prepared just in case. If you're working for a major outlet, you've got readers and viewers and listeners to cater to, and you want to make sure you're prepared. So I spent most of my day polishing off a series of stories that will run on Tuesday if Brian Kemp wins, if there's a runoff, or if Stacey Abrams wins. So those are all in the can. I'm working on other stories for next week while also keeping another eye on stories we've got to do this week. You know, that reminds me of my days as a speechwriter when we used to write three speeches in case you won, lost, or it was a draw. So we had to be prepared for just about everything. And inevitably, whatever speech you wrote, all three of them would get ripped up and thrown in the trash. <laughs> and then the candidate would say whatever they felt like saying anyway. My question um, is... But, yeah, go ahead. Did you, did you keep any of those speeches from, you know, momentous occasions? That, do you have them in your file somewhere of XYZ winning a race they didn't win or XYZ losing a race they ended up winning? Oh, yeah. I definitely kept. I mean, that was back in the paper days and I kept all of my paper. Now, tell me to find something on my computer this minute. And I really I don't know that I could do it. But Yes, I have every piece of paper I ever printed out, basically, in my old uh, days in politics. But uh, let's see. So now I'm at a I'm at another Starbucks drive through in Marietta and they have Christmas cups out, Greg. It means Election Day is drying <laughs> It's definitely, it means it's also we're, we're past Halloween. Um, yes. I tell you, I can still, I still have my Hillary Clinton wins <laughs> 2016 story. I still have my Jason Carter wins stories. I still have my David Perdue, um, Kelly Leffler win re-election stories from 2021. So I, I have them all somewhere. I haven't looked back at them, but I know I saved them in my Gmail somewhere just as point of reference that I, maybe I can show my kids one day. I love it. And we actually have in our home a framed um, edition of the newspaper that um, it doesn't say Dewey beats Truman. We actually have the framed copy that says Truman beats Dewey. It was like the second edition of the actually accurate. So it's not quite as valuable as the first one. But, you know, this is a... We are are back in the days in Georgia where anything can happen. And you can't guess. Like you just don't, we do not know what's going to happen with these races. It's so crazy. Back in the old days, you kind of could could uh, make your best guess. It would be a swing of at least 10 points. Um, but right now we really just don't know. So you have to be prepared for all, all outcomes. And there are plenty of predictions out there. We're going to get to more of that. We're also talking about how there's four different candidates and really four different campaigns going on in Georgia right now. A clash of policies at the top of the ticket for the governor's race. We're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag. And Patricia and I will have our who's up 
and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades, an AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. It has been a crazy busy last few days. I'm even having a hard time keeping track of what day it is. I know a lot of our listeners are having the same issues. We've been out all over the campaign trail just trying to keep tabs on what's going on with all the different candidates running. But Patricia, it strikes me, and I think you'll have a similar opinion, but as we go out to these different campaigns, we're seeing four different candidates with four different strategies. I haven't quite covered an election quite like this one before where A, there's a split ticket dynamic. So you're seeing a significant number of Republican voters saying they're backing both Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock, or at least withholding their support from Herschel Walker. And, you know, the strategies are in full display. And I I don't know, it's just very striking to me. Yeah. And it's not just four different strategies. I would say on the Republican side, at least, it is like two different worlds. It really (laughs) is like being inside the... The crowds are different. The tone is different. It's not just the policies and the approach that are different. Herschel Walker and Governor Brian Kemp are so different on the stump. They're talking about totally different issues and also just their approach to what they're talking about. Herschel Walker is so aggressive. He is so aggressive toward Raphael Warnock. The people in his crowds are really into that and they feed off of it. And they, you know, it feels sort of like 2020 when it was just sort of us against them. And Governor Brian Kemp's crowds is a little, you know, it's much more, uh, it's not sedate, but it's just more traditional. It's like a Chamber of Commerce event where everybody's excited, you know, but they're talking about tax cuts and property taxes and sort of the minutiae and mundane things of policy and governing. And um, but I will say also, boy, talk about a group of people who feel so good. They're afraid to feel as good as they feel right now about um, <laughs> about their changes on Tuesday. <laughs> Republicans across the state are saying, wow, I feel I feel too good. I'm a little I'm scared. I feel so good. I, I'm scared. It looks so good for us right now. So we will see if that optimism is well placed or misplaced. But right now, Republicans in Georgia, no matter what campaign they're on, really feel like Tuesday is going to be a good night for them. And let's start with Governor Kemp, because we've said this, we've talked about this on the show and covered it in our digital and print pages. You know, for months now, Governor Kemp has basically consolidated support from Republicans. There's all these fears that the MAGA crowd, that the pro-Trump crowd would abandon him. Even if it's a small number of Trump voters who abandoned Governor Kemp in a state as closely divided as Georgia is, that could spell doom for his campaign. But we haven't seen that happen. Poll after poll after poll shows Kemp with 95, 96, 97 percent of Republican support. So that's given him 
leeway to try to broaden his message. He's going to the suburbs. He's talking about broader base themes. He's not leaning into as many hard right conservative issues, as certainly as he did in the primary, but, but as Herschel Walker is leaning into. This is the promise that Governor Kemp made if he's reelected. You send us back. We had another record year. We have excess revenue. We're going to send you another billion dollars of your money back to help you keep fighting through 40-year high inflation. Patricia, that's sort of the message we've been hearing from. He's not talking about abortion, of course. He's not talking about guns or any of the issues that animated his 2018 campaign and really his 2022 primary. He's talking about these broader-based issues as he goes after a bigger slice of the electorate. Yeah. And when he was in Marietta today, I mean, that was a really a pretty traditional Republican crowd, older, white, you know, is also kind of in the middle of the day. So who else is going to be there? Um, (laughs) But Governor Kemp talked a lot about sort of the Republican Party he sees and the Republican Party he is going after. And he talked about candidates in Gwinnett, Sue Hong and Ray Martinez, um, obviously uh, Asian-American and Latino candidates over there. In Gwinnett County, he talked about John King, whom he appointed to be insurance commissioner. He said, we're going to make history on Tuesday night when Republicans elect their first statewide Latino in the history of Georgia. Talked about Indian American official who he appointed, African-American officials whom he's appointed. He's really talking about a different Republican Party than I have heard elected Republicans talk about before here in this state. And it kind of feels like he's turning a page to sort of a new kind of party that he would like to lead in the future as well. And it's very notable up until this point, we have not seen Governor Kemp and Senate Republican nominee Herschel Walker on stage together in a big public rally. They've, of course, appeared at similar uh, same events together and they've had backstage photos, but we haven't seen them together. You asked him about it, Patricia. Here is what he said. Mike. I mean, we're certainly open to that. I know he's got his own schedule, but look, I'm working hard to get the whole ticket elected. Uh, if our paths cross, we'll be glad to have him, glad to rally, glad to get the vote out. So that's Governor Kemp's take on campaigning with Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker's camp has been a little bit arm's length approach to Governor Kemp's camp, even though it's Governor Kemp who's surpassing him in the polls right now. And one reason for that, and I guess I'm just speculating here, but one reason is that, A, they want to run a, a very different sort of campaign than your your typical candidate. But B, he's still trying to shore up his conservative support. So out on the campaign trail, whereas you heard Governor Kemp talking about new tax breaks and tax refunds and pushing these broader-based issues, Herschel Walker's on the campaign trail talking about transgender athletes and women's sports and and accusing Senator Raphael Warnock of being a Marxist and just playing into the really far-right issues that you really see dominate in a primary season, but not as much in a general election campaign. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're also starting to see who else is coming out to campaign for Herschel Walker. Tulsi Gabbard is coming to campaign for Herschel Walker. Now, that is a far cry from the Doug Ducey's and Chris Mm -hmm. Christie's and Vice President Pence who are coming out to campaign for Governor Kemp. And, you know, we have not seen any cross-pollination between the surrogates. We are not seeing surrogates come in and sort of double dip on both of those campaigns. It really is two very separate Republican campaigns and camps also. So for Walker to be bringing in Tulsi Gabbard, she's she's also been out stumping for Carrie Lake in Arizona, has been stumping for a number of other, I would say, very Trump-aligned candidates. That's really putting Herschel Walker 
in that camp as well, which I think is really, really interesting. I mean, he is really running a much different campaign. And and as you said, just still really working hard to not just consolidate, but motivate those Republican voters to come out for him because Governor Brian Kemp has the luxury of going after moderate independent voters and even in his hopes, some moderate Democrats. Herschel Walker does not have that luxury. He needs every Republican to come out for him especially the ones who did not come out between Election Day in 2020 and the runoff in 2021. It's that group of 39,000 Republicans he can't live without, can't win without, and that's the group he's going after right now. Let's flip over to candidate number three, Senator Raphael Warnock, who's not only, of course, trying to appeal to liberal voters and to the party's traditional base, but also to those swing voters who are in the middle, who are signaling in poll after poll after poll that they can't support Herschel Walker. They're not willing to do that. And they need a reason to vote for Senator Raphael Warnock. And he's trying to give them that reason. He is not talking about Joe Biden on the campaign trail. He's not talking about Biden's policies. He's instead focusing on some more carefully crafted issues. He's talking about his provision, his proposal to cap the price of insulin at $35 to bring down drug prices. He's saying Herschel Walker is simply unfit for office. And one of the key things he's doing, and we've talked about this and you've all heard it, but he's speaking more about his alliance with Senator Ted Cruz on issues like a a highway bill or work with Tommy Tuberville on peanut related issues or work with Marco Rubio on trade issues than he is about working with Joe Biden. And of course, that is just crafted to try to make those kind of in the in the middle, skeptical Walker-type Republicans who might be voting for Governor Kemp but are really worried about Herschel Walker, that is tailored to help win them over. Yeah, and he's also not out there on the campaign trail with Stacey Abrams. It's not that they're, um, I don't know, they're avoiding each other, but they too are running really separate campaigns. And so the benefit to Raphael Warnock is that Stacey Abrams is out there with the statewide Democratic ticket really going after Democratic voters, doing events three, four or five a day to get in front of voters to tell them to vote early, get their votes banked, cast their ballots, do not wait, and really trying to motivate them to then go ahead and contact their relatives, their friends to do the same. And I actually talked to a couple of voters at a Stacey Abrams event. One woman said, I have called my son. He's coming home from college to come home and vote for Stacey Abrams. Another woman had just sent a text out to her entire text group of text friends and said, Herschel Walker is counting on you. And she was just kidding. But she said, I needed to get their attention somehow. And uh, <laughs> that's how she decided to do it. And, they, and she said, and I'm very confident they're all going out to vote for Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. She offered that they're voting for Warnock in the process as well. So by splitting up in this way, Warnock can really, he can know in the back of his mind that Abrams is out there really pumping up the Democrats that he is not getting in front of. And when he's getting in front of different groups, he's sort of doing a plus plus instead of a, you know, a game of subtraction. And of course, her mobilization strategy is different than Senator Warnock's as well. She's cut back on TV ad spending these last two weeks of the race while he's continuing to spend $4 million plus each week. And her campaign says that they're shifting some of that money towards digital and a more grassroots organization. And of course, she built that campaign apparatus back in 2018 that propelled her to a near win against now Governor Brian Kemp. And she's credited with helping build the infrastructure in 2020 that helped get those two U.S. Senators, Ossoff and Warnock, across the finish line. 
Yeah, but you know what's so interesting is that when we talk about the ground game, Republicans, I feel like they felt like they had a real wake-up call in 2020. And many of them have have told me specifically of the feeling of starting to get try to get their uh, voters back out in those runoffs, those uh, Senate runoffs. And they were outmanned literally 100 to 1 by Democrats on the ground who were who had come into the state to do door knocking and to do calls, texts, anything that it took. And so Governor Brian Kemp has his own field operation, has his own door knockers, mm-hmm. has his own canvassing operation. He's not doing it in concert with the state Republican Party that was sort of running, you know, kind of running point on that operation in 2021. He's he's going it alone. And I think trying really has no interest in leaving his fate to somebody else, especially in the state GOP. And then Kelly Loeffler has dumped millions of dollars into a canvassing operation all on her own. And that will supplement what the Kemp campaign is doing as well. So there are as much as we have heard so much about the Democratic ground game, Republicans are working very hard to not just match that, but to best that and to have their own operation that they can rely on to get their voters out just as effectively as the Democrats did in 2020. And we'll know just in a few days how well that is working. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to the Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only the two hosts of Politically Georgia, but we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt Newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. You can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community this very moment by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia, I felt like we've almost overlapped on the jolt a couple days in the last couple weeks because you always wake up at like 3 a.m. in the morning. I always do it late at night. But a couple mornings, I've actually been up in the ballpark. I mean, you gave me crap once. You know, I said, I'm almost up near you. You said, well, at 6 a.m., I've already been up for three for three hours. But still, <laughs> if I'm up sorry. at 5.30, that's pretty early for me. And that is early for you. I predict that on Tuesday morning, I'm going to see you in the jolt because I will be up on Tuesday morning. No, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning, because I will be up on Wednesday morning to do the jolt and you will still be up from election night. I am positive. And you might be, too. I, I often... I might still be, too, unfortunately. Yeah, pull all-nighters. Although, and we'll talk about this in another... We've had a lot of special episodes, but we'll have a few more over the weekend and into Election Day. But we'll talk about some of the election changes, which at least promise quicker vote counting. That doesn't mean we'll have quicker results. <laughs> that doesn't mean we'll have quicker calls. But there were a number of changes embedded in, in Senate Bill 202, the election rewrite, that push 
county elections officials to do a quicker count of elections. So we might have, there's a chance we have earlier results, but there's a chance we go on for days like we've, like we've done in, in years past. I, well, I can't, I don't want to think about it. I will, we will take it as it comes. Like I, we we are hoping for early, early results and firm decisions from voters. Your AJC crew is ready. Okay, Patricia, you were just talking about Stacey Abrams and her campaign strategy, which is leaning in to left. She's embracing Joe Biden. She's embracing some more liberal policies than we've heard uh, Senator Warnock talk about. And I want to get into a little bit more of that because we have a weekend story this week already out on AJC.com about the vast policy differences between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. I mean, this is not an election where they're differing on just a handful of, of key issues like we've seen in some years past in Georgia, they they have completely contrasting philosophies on just about every important issue in Georgia, from election law, the economy, education, healthcare, criminal justice, guns, abortion. I mean, you name it. I polled, I quizzed a few veteran Capitol observers to ask them if they've ever seen a contrast this stark before except for in 2018, of course, when they had a, their first matchup. And Neil Herring said, I can't think of a single thing. The one thing that really came up in, in the last debate was they both said they'd uh, acknowledge the election results. But that's about it. That, that, that's about where the overlap stops between them. Yeah. And that's so interesting, because when you think about where we started with this campaign and some of Abrams' earliest policy issues, it almost seemed like she was following in Kemp's footsteps on a couple of occasions. She, her, One of her earliest proposals was to also have a teacher pay raise, but a bigger one, and to also have a law enforcement pay raise, but a bigger one. So it was uh, very similar themes and very similar directions that she was heading in. But then, of course, as time has gone on, she has really, really delineated and laid out her policy positions. And I mean, literally more than 100 policy positions. And um, many have a, a connection to the economy, but they are also really steeped in progressive ideas and values and really looking to push the kinds of policies that she's always been for. I think also take something like her position on law enforcement is so interesting to me. She's been accused so many times of wanting to defund the police. She has never said, no, that's not true. She has said, no, that's not true. But I also want to insist on accountability. And then in a last uh, debate that she had with Governor Kemp, she talked about um, she didn't have all of the sheriffs on her side because she doesn't think that sheriffs should be able to go out and uh, get black people off the streets, which some sheriffs want to do, she said. Um, she wants to make sure that law enforcement have the resources they need, but also the accountability to ensure that criminal justice is a part of the equation. And so that's really essential for her to do, to continue to speak to the Black communities that she has always spoken to. That is something they are listening for. So she has always taken a very, very nuanced approach to a number of issues. I think abortion is another example where she has said that she would, you know, draw the line for restrictions at viability, but that doctors should be the ones to determine viability. And she would never, ever, ever put a time limit on that or a week limit. She said that's up to doctors. And so it's a much more kind of intellectual, nuanced approach to policy and campaigning. But I think it also has made it harder for her in many cases because it makes it easier for Republicans to kind of demonize some of the things that she is saying. If you listen to the full context or the full quote, it's often not what they're saying she said, but it is a much different approach than you will get from almost any other candidate out there right now. 
Yet, as you mentioned, they have such conflicting approaches to, to these key policies. She wants to expand Medicaid. Governor Kemp says it's too expensive and inflexible in the long run. She wants to repeal his gun laws, his permissive gun stances. He, of course, says that's part of his public safety package. She wants to roll back the anti-abortion restrictions. He said he, of course, wants to leave them in place. But I think one of the biggest differences between the two, among those other very big differences, are how they want to spend a $6.6 billion plus surplus. Let's listen to what Stacey Abrams said. It's like we struck the Powerball, and I'm asking each of you to put five on it, because together we can spend that money on the people of Georgia. That's why I'm going to have And here's what she said about her proposal to give teachers a, a hefty pay raise. That a governor who makes sure that we invest a starting salary of $50,000 for every new teacher. Uh, This, to me, Patricia, is one of the most striking contrasts between these two rivals. Stacey Abrams feels like this $6.6 billion surplus is a once in a generation windfall that she can use to push what she calls generational changes to the status quo in Georgia, while Governor Kemp has a much more reserved approach. He wants to give back about $2 billion of that and save most of the rest. We haven't heard exactly how he wants to spend the other $4 billion or so of that surplus, if at all. Yes, Kemp has said he wants to do that both as a tax cut and a property tax refund. That's a way to get to homeowners who are, I'm sure some voters, I mean, not voters, some listeners are about to experience this. Property values have gone up so much, especially in the metro area, but also in Augusta and Savannah and other areas around the state that your property tax bill is about to go up as well. And so his proposal is to spend some of that surplus on uh, filling that gap for Georgians as well. I mean, listen, that's another one of those across the board, put money back in your pocket, situations where even Democrats are like, sure, I'll take it. You know, I mean, there's not, you're not going to get a whole lot of objection from voters. Um, But Stacey Abrams says, listen, we can do something bigger than that. We can do something that's going to last for generations and not just a one-off property tax payoff. So it's very emblematic of both of their approaches to government in that Abrams really believes that government is a part of the solution to people's problems. And Kemp believes that government is a part of the problem in many cases. And so I think this is one of the best examples, one of the clearest examples of their different approaches, even just to the role of a governor and the job of government is uh, how they would spend that big, big surplus that we've got right now. I use the phrase a golf uh, to describe the divide between the two, but ocean uh, might might be a better better way to describe it. Okay, Patricia, It is now time for our favorite segment of the week. I think this is our favorite. It's my favorite. It used to be who's up and who's down, but now it's the listener mailbag. (laughs) You can't even see me dancing this time because our cameras are cut off. I'm pretty sure the music is my favorite part of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Shaney B. wrote it himself. (laughs) I did. Composed and written by Shaney B. (laughs) It took him him years. This was his uh, his masterpiece. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Shane, we got so many questions this week that your interns were 
we're, we're just exhausted. So we, we picked the very best one. Yes, one. But it's one with two questions. We got a phone call from DD in Atlanta. So here's the first part of DD's question. I love the Politically Georgia podcast. I love reading the jolt. I have two questions. My first is, during the Republican primary, Gary Black said he could not or would not support Herschel Walker. Has he sticked to this position, and are there other prominent Republicans who have also said they could not support him? Dee Dee, it's a great question. Gary Black has not changed his position. He maintains and has never said it otherwise. He is not voting for Herschel Walker, and he, he declared that in no uncertain terms. We're not hearing that from other Republicans out loud. We do see, obviously, he and Governor Kemp have not spent any time on a campaign stage together so far. Other Republicans have not shared the stage with him so far. However, Governor Kemp has said that he will be voting for Herschel Walker. So, you know, the limits of their distance from Herschel Walker, that stops at the voting booth. They're voting for him no matter what's come before. And I think they will, be, they will be joined by millions of Georgians. Yeah, Didi, I love your question. Gary Black told me that in Alto, Georgia, beautiful Alto, Georgia, just a few days before May 24th primary, when, of course, he went down in defeat to Herschel Walker, he said, look, he can't vote for someone who has a violent history with women. He said it was disqualifying to him. I've tried to get him to elaborate since then. I reached out to him not long ago, a couple days ago, really, just to see if he had comment on the latest abortion allegations. He said, basically, uh, I'm going to stay out of that one. He's he's not commenting. Um, but I do see him a lot. I see him, saw him in Gray, Georgia, on the campaign trail at a law enforcement luncheon that, that many bipartisan officials showed up at. I'd say, Patricia's right, we've heard from really no other Republicans saying they won't vote for Herschel Walker. But there's one semi-exception, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. He has been one of the GOP's loudest critics of Herschel Walker, but still he has not said whether he'll vote for him or not. He said that basically the jury's still out. And he was at a luncheon that our colleague Maya T. Prabhu covered earlier this week where we thought he'd give a little bit more of an explanation of his stance, but afterwards he told her he still has not made up his mind, but he does know one thing, he won't be voting for Senator Raphael Warnock. Or for Burt Jones. We asked him if he planned to endorse Burt Jones for lieutenant governor, which is his current job, Jeff Duncan, and he said, no, I'm not. I haven't been asked, and I wouldn't do it anyway. All right, ready for part two? Oh, yeah. My second question is, I have loved reading Greg's book, Flipped, and I'm wondering if Patricia has any plans for a book after this election. I hope so. That's all you, Patricia. Dee I feel like my mom might have put you up to that question. <laughs> I do have an idea for a book. It doesn't have anything to do with this campaign cycle, but it does have to do with leadership and public service. And I will keep y'all posted if anything ever comes of it. But thank you, Dee Dee. That is one of the nicest things anyone has said to me in a long time, except for Governor Kemp's, uh, not campaign staff, but somebody at Williamson Brothers Barbecue earlier today said that the press would eat for free today. And after so many people calling us fake news and all the bad words under the sun, for someone to say the media is getting lunch today on us was also one of the nicest things <laughs> that I've heard. So, you know, peep, the big hearts are coming out at the end of this campaign season. 
Well, let me second what DD said. Patricia, you should 100% go write that book. I have no idea what it's about, but you should go and do it. It's one of the most, <laughs> it's one of the hardest but most rewarding things you can do professionally. But it's, but it's, Wait, but it's awesome. Greg. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Will there be, I'm just going to go ahead and ask, will there be a sequel to Flipped coming up based on I, this campaign season? What's the word? I don't know the ending yet <laughs> of, of a potential book. <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> I Yeah, you know, uh, it, it probably does. Um, but we'll see. I've been keeping meticulous notes, far more notes than I kept for the first book. Um, so I won't have to re-report as much as I did for the first book. But it all, it's also a discussion I have to have with my wife and my family because it involved a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, a lot of Patricia hours. Um, not necessarily 3 a.m., <laughs> but, but some early warnings uh, otherwise. But look, I, it, it would be fun to write another one. Um, I just have to um, figure out what happens. <laughs> Greg, would you name the sequel to Flipped Flopped? I've For had me. lots of Republicans say that flopped or fluke or <laughs> flip back. Fluke. <laughs> uh, I've had Democrats say it should be called sacked. If, if I kind of like loses. fluke. Backflipped, all that. So all that good stuff. Um, but hey, you know, here's here's my stance on all this. Even if, look, even if Republicans have a wave and they sweep, it does not mean, and, and I think Republicans would agree, does not mean Georgia is suddenly not a competitive battleground anymore. Georgia is still going to be a premier battleground state in 2024, and then 2026 is right around the corner. So you won't hear Governor Kemp or Chris Carr or any other Republicans, if they are victorious next week, saying, okay, you know, <laughs> George is no longer competitive. We proved it. It was Chris Carr and Governor Kemp who were the ones who were warning way back in 2018, 2017, that Georgia was about to become a lot more competitive. So stay tuned on <laughs> all that. Okay. It is time for Who's Up and Who's Down. Patricia, who's your Who's Down for the week? My who's down for the week. Greg, I'm going to take the very rare step. I, I am going to have a who's up, but I'm not going to have a who's down. I do not like to make predictions, and I don't even want to have a who's down this close to election day. I feel like it's bad juju for me, so I'm going to stay away from my who's downs. I'll give you my who's up when it's my turn, but I think right now these campaigns are running so hard, and we just don't know what's going to happen. So I'm going to leave my who's down uh, to you. Mine is going to be the same. We'll know next week who's down. Wah, wah. Um, <laughs> but the other obvious who's down is the Tennessee Volunteers going into the most highly touted matchup in Sanford Stadium history on Saturday against the number one ranked Georgia Bulldogs. You know, you can't not think that the uh, the Tennessee Volunteers are who's down this week ahead of that big matchup. And yours truly will be there. Uh, and there's also a few campaign events, so I'll get to do kind of pull double duty watching, uh, covering some rallies while I'm in Athens for the biggest game in Athens history. <laughs> How surprising that you'll find a way to be working uh, when you're also at a football game. <laughs> well, not necessarily working hard, <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be there. Well, who is, who is your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week goes without question to the poll workers across Georgia. We have heard of very few problems. We know that each county had to recruit lots and lots of new poll workers. This 
felt like an extremely perilous time to be out there volunteering in this capacity. And it has gone off very, very smoothly. And so uh, for all of the poll workers who have been out there during early voting and for those who will be out on Tuesday, we are very grateful to them. And I think so far it's been a really, really terrific job to have pulled this huge early mm-hmm. voting turnout to pull it off really relatively seamlessly, I think, has, is, uh, is worthy of my who's up this week. Amen. Especially in this climate where we saw in 2020 uh, poll workers who were unfairly and, and just sadly criticized based on a, a phony election fraud conspiracies and all the like. It's a testament to them standing up. They are the, uh, the heroes of our democracy. I'd also say my who's up in addition to the poll workers, is everyone who's voted so far. More than 2 million people in Georgia have already cast the early ballots. Friday is expected to be the busiest day of the early voting period. We'll see if that actually happens because so many people have already voted. But it's great that so many people have banked their votes now, either by casting them in person or from mail-in, setting all sorts of midterm records so far, at least with with in-person votes. And, you know, it means there'll be less of a strain. There'll still be a huge number of people who vote on election day, but it's a less of a strain for all those hardworking election workers and less of a strain on voters themselves because they don't have to stress as much about long lines and snafus and the other things that tend to, to happen when, when so many people rush to the polls. Well, we here at Politically Georgia would love to know what you think of our podcast. Please click the link in today's episode description, answer a few questions, so we'll know how to make this podcast even better for you. Thanks so much for listening to the Political Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or like this week, uh, 16 more whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time <laughs> on Politically Georgia for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,